0: Welcome back to another episode of Questions with Crocker with me, Dr. Crocker, and my husband, Shane. I'm here. We are here. Present and accounted for. Ready to go. Big swig of Diet Mountain Dew to start us off. So if you're watching on YouTube, uh, you got to see that. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, we appreciate you being here. A little bit about us. This is a podcast about veterinary medicine behind the scenes. I am an emergency veterinarian and also a general practice small animal hospital owner. And Shane owns that practice with me, one, because we're married, and two, because he is really good at a lot of things I'm not good at. Spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. Excel. He's a master. I don't think there's, there's not much that excites you more than a good Excel sheet that's got a lot of columns and formulas and things that you can do. I would agree. Why is that exactly?
1: I don't know. I like numbers. And that's a way for me to look at numbers different ways.
0: The other thing you really enjoy is...
1: Nick just sent me that text, actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) during the podcast, he just... This is how how much his friends know him just got a picture from a friend of a coffee cup that says freak in the sheets and it shows an excel (laughs) spreadsheet so if anyone knows where to find this coffee cup uh, we actually might need to purchase it uh, for christmas for you that's hilarious actually um thanks nick for that (laughs) because that will be on your list uh next birthday for sure so we are here to talk a little bit about uh, veterinary medicine and we've talked about a lot of different things we've talked about my vet med journey. We've talked about owning a hospital. We've given updates on all that. And really, this podcast is based off of questions you submit as a listener. And we got a really interesting one in. But first, I want to kind of recap or update on some things that we talked about the last time. I
1: don't remember what we talked about last time. I have no idea.
0: (laughs) It's been a whole week. No. uh, So we talked about uh, a couple of different things. But one of the things that I commented on that a lot of people had a lot of feelings about was not understanding why a veterinarian would need like one hour appointments. Oh, yeah. I
1: remember that. No. And
0: we posted that clip on social media and boy, did we get some feedback. And actually some of it was really good information and things that I hadn't thought about, which is why we post it because part of this podcast is sharing and learning. And yeah, getting- we
1: actually ask people to share some information so we could learn from that.
0: Yes, so they did. And they brought up some really great points. So majority of people said... You know, my practice does one hour appointments. It's for new grads. It doesn't mean they're with the client for an hour. It means they're with the client, but then they have time to like look up things, finish records, kind of adjust to the flow, talk to other doctors, you know, during and between appointments. And if an appointment is lengthy or they have time to run lab work, you know, look at x-rays maybe with someone else. And so it just gives them a little bit of a cushion where they don't get behind and they can be really thorough and learn along the way, right? Because it is true, as you start to go along and practice, you see common things really commonly, you already kind of know this is my treatment plan like while you're talking to the owner you're already coming up with the things you're going to do you kind of know some drug dosages off the top of your head they have to look all that up in the very beginning so they need a little more time but most people said within two to three months they're transitioning to 20 30 minute appointments it doesn't last that long now the other one though that was interesting to me was
1: which makes sense i mean i get that right yes there's a transition into shorter appointments and it just takes everybody a little bit longer to get up to speed
0: well it's, and honest, makes perfect sense. honestly it sounds like good mentoring to me yeah. like if you no problem with that listen to them you know that's what they need and that's what you give them like totally valid i'm worried because that battery is maybe flashing i can't tell so we'll have to see what happens
1: we may not have video
0: <laughs> we may not have my video why is mine always the one that cuts out so the other big thing that people said was if they work in fear-free clinics they have much longer appointments. So if you're not familiar with it, Fear Free is the concept of really using a lot of methods and even medications to make an appointment as low stress as possible on the pet. Um, It does require more time because sometimes you are giving medications prior to the appointment or at the appointment and letting those take effect before you're doing a lot of things. You also do a lot of like positive reinforcement with treats and with other things to I guess, distract the pet and make it less stress on them. But those things also take additional time. So you're moving away from like that. We're just going to hold this pet down, get everything done. Um, and really, I think it's great for yeah, the pet.
1: Again, okay with that. My my guess is they charge more for those appointments.
0: hundred percent, yes. And the most interesting thing to me was there was a lot of pet owners in the comments saying, we go to a fair-free practice. It takes longer and we are willing to pay more money for that experience because our pet is less stressed. So I think if you have a fear-free practice, and you have to get certified to say you are one. Um, There's training that you do online. It's really, really comprehensive and great. Um, And then you market that. You actually can really help a lot of pets and also find the type of clients that are willing to pay for those longer experiences. Well, on the flip side, we had some people on there saying, if I went to my vet and my appointment took an hour for like a vaccine visit, like I would be angry. My pet does not want to be at the vet, you know, for that long. So I really think it's around how you build that experience, the type of clients you have. And my biggest thing was also like the way I work I don't take that long. But I understand that some people can. And really, it's not always the vet taking that long. It could be multiple members of your team that are interacting with a pet and a client that are going to, you know, drag that out. So as long as it it can pay for itself over time, whether you're building a young veterinarian up so they'll have a strong foundation, good medicine skills, good communication skills because you're taking that time, or you're charging more for that experience because you are doing something that takes longer and the owner sees the value of it. I'm totally fine with the one. Yeah, I mean both
1: those seem very valid to me. I think what we didn't hear is we take an hour long appointment and it's the same price as the one down the road that's a twenty minute appointment. Like Uh, that model doesn't work.
0: Right. And it's not something that like long term is sustainable for a practice. It's something that's a really short term investment with a practice with like a new grad specifically, and you're just doing it so they're better faster. Makes sense. And so I totally understand that.
1: And with the fear-free concept, it's almost like uh, human medicine where you have like concierge models, right? It's people willing to pay more for access to care or longer appointment times or whatever that is. So, I mean, to me, that makes sense too. There's a There's a market for that for sure.
0: Yeah, because it is interesting to me. Like, we've taken our children to, like, the ER, urgent care. Our pediatrician's amazing. She spends time with us, like, listens to us. But everywhere else, I mean, they barely touch my kid, and it's, like, in and out. And it's dramatically more than we would ever charge anybody. So I do think if people see that you're spending the time and you're listening to them, they're getting the value from that, um, you can definitely... Have your culture set up where you're compensated correctly for that, and some people working in that model—that is what has made this profession sustainable for them. Working for free, doing things that they think are best for the pet—I mean, that's kept them in this profession. So I think it's very valid, and I appreciate everyone's feedback. I would agree for the most part. Everyone was very kind. There's always a few, <laughs> but I always tell people that are wanting to do social media as like a vet professional. I'm—I I tell them I have that a thick skin thick skin you got to have a thick skin and really you have to realize if you are on social media in a profession i think the people in the profession are the people hardest on you like you either have people that are why is
1: that though is it competition is it
0: i don't know i mean it's
1: smarter than i mean it's not just veterinary med right i mean it's it's all professions but like i don't understand like is it like a power thing is it a ego thing? is, I don't know.
0: I think probably for different people, it's different reasons. I mean, some of the most controversial posts will be someone showing how they like do a blood draw or do an IV catheter. And then that can be done 50 different ways. And people will literally be like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you didn't do that. I can't believe you wore gloves. I can't believe you didn't. Like the comments are so kind of ridiculous Polarizing. and also things that like you could have just scrolled by this like yeah. you didn't really have to stop and do a rant on that um so there was a lot of people that were basically like you don't support new grad vets if you don't think they need an hour like you must not care about them you know and i'm like Ugh. that is not
1: <laughs> the case <laughs> so
0: i just said like listen to the whole podcast you'll hear all my not thoughts. only that
1: but like look at all your st- Post on social media. I mean, it's all about new grads and and being a mentor and bringing people up in the industry because you love the industry. I mean...
0: Yes. Yes. And you have to I think that's the big thing, right? If you have a platform, you have to know what you stand for and who you yep. are. And that's part of, honestly, our profession as a whole, because you'll have clients also that'll meet you for the first time and make assumptions or say things. And you're like, you don't know me at all. Um, So you have to know, like, what your why is and who you are and just kind of toss all yeah, that I mean, aside. Just,
1: and this is sidetrack, But going back to why you have a presence online to begin with and do speaking and stuff, all that started with students. It, it all started with going to the, the colleges to the vet, schools. The vet schools to talk and doing it on your own dime and your own time. So,
0: yeah, I mean, it started because I felt like everything was negative in our veterinary space and people were literally telling vet students who are already in vet school to become a veterinarian. You made a horrible decision. You're going to hate this job. I wish I had never done it. And just thinking of like you spent all this time to get to vet school and these people are being so discouraging. And so I really just wanted to connect with them and like encourage them and, and give them like reasons why I still liked it. Right. Like not just say like, I love my job, but This is why these are the things I've done and try to give, you know, action steps. So I am glad people resonate with it. But I 100 percent majority of the haters and the majority of the loud people are the ones from our profession. And you just have to know that going into it and know that you're going to get so many other amazing messages and make great connections and friendships that it is worth it, in my opinion. But some people shouldn't do it if they don't have a thick skin. That's
1: it. Or just only look at golf stuff on YouTube. (laughs)
0: That's why that's why there's not a, a Shane Crocker <laughs> right. social media presence. I who do you think has the thicker skin between the two of us? Probably you. I think I do. I think there's been it's been interesting there's been things where I've been attacked and you have gotten way more angry about angry. it than I have. Um and I have kind of you know been able to say like it is what it is this person is not somebody you know I appreciate their opinion but it has angered you more to see people I guess vilify me or say something about me that you don't feel like is true. So out. I do love you for that. Thanks. <laughs> Every girl like wants wants their man to stand up for. Him, so I appreciate that. Okay. So all of that talking about students actually leads into our question that we got because it's from a pre-vet student, um, which I love that they listen to the podcast and they reach out. So this question is from Ellison Malico. And they said, um, I'm going to be a freshman in college in the fall at UGA, and I'm majoring in animal science. So freshmen, love it, pre-vet, already thinking ahead to what we want to do. Wondering if you guys have any advice on what experiences are most beneficial or important to get an undergrad in preparation for vet school Mm -hmm. and applying. I know research is a big thing, and a lot of vet schools look to that. So is there any advice on research opportunities? Thanks so much. Y'all are the best. I like it when people say y'all. No, they're at UGA.
1: But they put y'all.
0: I know, but that's just a Southern thing. You know that. (laughs) I actually had someone tell me, don't say y'all in my videos because there'll be people that won't. Listen to you if you use you know, and I'm like, but that's how I talk.
1: But I do that on purpose. It's just comes st- I
0: don't know how to stop saying something that is just my natural flow. So so I think this is a great question. And I kind of came up with um a list of just in general things to do to make your application stronger and then want to address like the research question in there as we go. So one of the big things I think is it's really important to do well in undergrad. I know that sounds like very basic, um, but there's actually tricks to that a little bit. So, there is things like if you're struggling and it's a class you know is a core class for vet school that's very important and weighted, meaning when I applied to vet school, they looked at my overall GPA, they looked at, like, my science GPA, and they looked at my last year of class as GPA. And all those things were actually equally weighted. So they didn't care as much, like, my grade I made in, like, English freshman year didn't matter as much as the grade that I made in organic chemistry or, like, a core class for what? vet school
1: it's a lot of sense.
0: The other thing is if you get into vet school, you're still finishing up your last year. So you technically can get into the vet school while you're still in certain classes and then you just have to pass those classes to get into school. So sometimes actually putting a harder class like your very last semester
1: placing your classes can
0: mm-hmm. make a lot of sense. I also Great always advice. knew like when the drop date was. So a drop date in college is usually like you can start a class at a certain point if you're like I'm not learning from this professor well. I'm not vibing with him.
1: I did that in biology four times, I'm pretty sure. I was
0: about to say, you (laughs) did this a couple times. There were
1: several times that that took place (laughs) at Louisiana Tech.
0: So if you know, like, I'm not going to learn from this person. I I just don't get how they're teaching. You actually can drop that class and have it not count for or against you, which means you have to make it up still. But finding out which professors are the ones that maybe teach a little bit better or you'll understand more will help you get professors that you're going to
1: I used to follow the athletes around, to be honest with you.
0: What do you mean? A
1: bunch of athlete buddies. So they always got advised on what teachers to take. So I just tagged along with those teachers.
0: Do you think those teachers were just easier or do you think...
1: They were easier. They maybe just taught in a different style.
0: Or maybe their tests were like not as bad. I still remember in physics, I think it was physics one... Um, my professor would fly through their material in class and you would just like try to get what you could out of it. Um, and then the test, literally everyone made like 30s and 40s on it. And then he just had to like do this huge curve. So yeah. you would pass. And I never understood that. Like,
1: I always did that when I sat down, look around the room and say, okay, I'm at least in the top 40% here. I'm, I'm, <laughs> like I'm good I to go. They can't other- tell everybody. All I got to do is beat the curve, right?
0: Right. But the thing is, like if your tests are that hard, we're like you have to curve at 20, 30 points. That doesn't make sense to me. That means people are not learning the information. They're not retaining it. And so I would get so frustrated. So one of the other things that I think is a big tip is asking for help when you need it. So I did hire tutors for certain classes. I went to actual, like, group tutoring. Um, And then I was a college athlete, and they also offered, like, free tutoring for us on campus. So I would do that. I would go to all the TAs, you know, tutoring that I could do. Because they often would say, this is going to be on the test. Like, you need to know this. this. Yeah. So I would, on those classes, I knew they were really important. And that I eventually had to take and do well or take and pass. Like, I made sure to go a little extra on those. Um, And I also... I fluffed my schedule a little bit sometimes like we had athletics and I asked like what is the athletic that's the easiest one I'm gonna get an A in and A&M had country and western dancing Loved to dance so I went and got to learn like how to two-step and met a whole group of people that we ended up going out with <laughs> every night
1: this is what not to do <laughs> prior to getting into vet school
0: no it was great it was great because I got good experience I met people um and I also made an easy a so a couple things to take away from that is asking for help when you need it, knowing what drop dates are, knowing which classes are weighted heavier with vet school applications and knowing you really need to nail those classes or putting those classes at the very end where you only have to pass them. All those are kind of tips and tricks that I think you can. Yeah, take.
1: I think also early on going into college, a lot of times we're kind of gung ho about, you know, doing a hard classes because you feel like you can do it. I always tell people out of the gate. Take it take easy classes right out of the gate. learn how to study on your own learn how to how your mind retains knowledge, how you want to you know um, do things and adjust to college life. If you load yourself up in the first semester, uh, it could be very difficult so take it light the first semester or two and then start working your way up to more intense classes.
0: I think that is great advice. I think the minimum that most colleges want you to take is twelve hours um I had later semesters in my career where I took because I never took summer school. So I had later semesters where I took 15, 18. I took 20 hours my very last um semester. And I actually was in the higher level classes I liked and I did really well. But those first semesters I took 12 yes. because I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You got to learn where everything is. You need to learn how to manage, you know, getting Tom. yourself places. Yes. And how to study is really, really important. What kind of learner do you think you are? Because I think they say there's like visual where you can see things. There's where you hear it. There's where you read it. There's where you write it out. Like what type of learning yeah, this, style? just took that? me
1: a long time to figure out, but I'm the guy that has to go to class and actually listen, pay attention, sometimes suck up to the professor so to know who you are. <laughs>
0: That's not a learning style. That's like a life skill. A life skill.
1: <laughs> and then I would also um, have to come back and I would rewrite my notes. So whatever notes I took, I would basically take those outline chapters in the book and rewrite that stuff. And that's how I would kind of process that information.
0: I think I was similar in the fact that I really liked to write things out. And I was visual in a way because I could organize things on a sheet of paper and highlight and have lists and sections. And actually during a test, I could think to myself, okay, like that was upper right corner and it was this list. And I could actually sometimes like visualize what the answer was because of how I laid out like my sheet of paper. But really in vet school, the biggest thing I found out is If I can teach people something, I know it. And so I was a group studier. Some people are very individual studying. I was a group studier because we would all get together. We'd have a big whiteboard and we would write things out. And then, you know, you'd have to explain it to your classmate or ask questions. And if we could do that, I was like, I I really understand this concept. And I wanted to really understand it in vet school because these classes mattered. Like understanding physiology, anatomy, those things mattered for me to be a good veterinarian. Hi, Bobby. Our cat has joined us for the podcast. So I think that those are all important things to look at and to know, like what type of learning that you do. And I think there's actual ways that you can test and check, like what your learning style is. Um, A lot of people that apply to vet school are very smart and they have actually coasted through like high school part of undergrad. And so sometimes as they get into those harder classes, it's actually an adjustment to kind of say, oh, wait a second, this is not as easy as it's been in the past. So learning those things early and in undergrad are really, really helpful. Anything else you can add to the whole classes, school part of it? Okay. So the next part that I thought would be important to talk about, which is kind of with the research side of things is hands-on experience. Let me, (laughs) I'm trying to decide like how I can say this. So it is a little surprising to me that people will apply to vet school and never have worked with a veterinarian.
1: It's surprising to me that people that are interviewing potential vet students would allow people into vet school without that, I, in my opinion.
0: I think that, you know, potentially people could say, you know, I volunteered some at a shelter or I helped a rescue or if they're smart enough and they had good enough, like other things, grades, things like that. I mean, they probably could get away with saying like, I had minimal, like I visited the vet with my parents, but there are people who have like shadowed maybe one afternoon at a vet hospital and like that's the extent of their experience. And then they're going to school. I do totally understand that based on where you are, it can be hard to get experience. So there are areas where vets are not as common. There's areas where Certain demographics might not have, like, access to that or the ability to get to a hospital in shadow. So there are some parameters around, like, if you're able to do it or not. But in general, if you want to go into a certain field, I think you should experience it. And I don't know how else to say that.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, and again, that's not just veterinary specific. I think it's any field. But specifically fields where you're going for a secondary degree, if I'm going to spend all that time, energy, Money. money. doing it. I want to make sure this is what I want to do. So I would get as much hands-on experience so you can know what is this really like. You know, it's not just playing with puppies all day.
0: No. And there is a, I would say for the people that come and like shadow with us or visit, or even are in like the high school program, then come to an actual like vet hospital. There's a pretty significant amount of them that say, I, this is not what I thought it was. And that's because, yes, you're helping pets, but you're also dealing with a lot of very sick pets. You're dealing with clients sometimes that can be difficult. You're dealing with pets that can be difficult. You're dealing with euthanasias. Like, it is not playing with puppies and kittens. And we say that all the time, but it still doesn't always, like, resonate with everyone. So it is important to try to spend time either volunteering, shadowing, or working in a hospital if possible. And if you're an undergrad, there's a couple of things you can do. I actually worked like at the vet school, um, and you can be a student worker in different departments. Um, I worked in the chemistry lab uh, when I was like young undergrad. And then as I got farther along, I actually went over and worked at the large animal ICU at the vet school and helped with treatments. The nice thing about being a student worker in college is they pretty much say like, when can you work? What are the hours? You make like no money, right, per hour. But You're getting experience and you're making connections. I
1: think you also get the networking connections part of that's huge too. I mean, you don't know who's evaluating those uh, applications they come in or who's going to be sitting in on interviews. I mean, all that networking could be worth your time and energy.
0: Yeah, I mean, working in the large animal ICU was huge. I knew a lot of the techs and the professors by the time I had gotten to vet school and especially in my clinical year, like I knew how the ICU was run. I knew where everything was, like the comfort level I had was much higher, Um, but the the connections were great and having like a reference from those people was huge. Um, So I do think that there's a lot of opportunity and your school should have like a student worker job site with job descriptions. Like I said, I started in the chemistry lab cleaning like glassware for chemistry. And then I started like looking for other positions and found more and more. I think the more you do them in, you know, you know, different departments, then you can kind of find what works for you. So that's a good way to do it. And the same goes for research. So I didn't do research in undergrad, but there are student worker positions in research labs where you go in and you run ELISA's and you run analysis. Actually, I did. I'm lying. I worked for a statistics person for a little bit and did like a really short research project. And actually, it's all coming back to me now. I'm too old. When I got into vet school, one of the research projects I did was doing statistical analysis and helping come up with all that for a big goat project for an equine vet. So you
1: did a project with some pigs.
0: I did. Pigs and goats. And actually, those were interesting because so... We had to do a lot of blood draws, and both were kind of traumatic <laughs> because goats. Have you ever heard? You've heard a goat like cry, right? Oh yeah. It sounds like a child. Like it sounds like an actual human child. And so we would walk in the barn, and we were there to like draw blood and do stuff, um, or they were going to be fed. Those are the two reasons people would come to the barn. And so it, you go in there, and it sounded all of a sudden like. 50 children (laughs) screaming at you and so we're trying to get it like done quickly um get the analysis that we need and get out of there the pigs the pigs were actually not very nice um it was a cool project where we were taking oreos and we were putting birth control in the double stuffed oreos and feeding them to the pigs because they were trying to find ways to control like wild pig herds out you know in the world so a way that they could like deliver birth control to them and they could eat it and it would help so we would have
1: Uh, I don't know anything about science. I'm a finance guy. (laughs) But... how are you going to stuff Oreos <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> full of birth control and throw them out to control the wild pig population? So I, don't, I just don't understand <laughs> that concept. I mean, I, this is like a waste of a lot of I money and we energy. Work, no, I no, I
0: don't think we're working on like the delivery I'm method. I'm just saying. The Oreos were not the like long-term this, plan. We were this working project on was like, missing
1: a few, <laughs> a few pieces.
0: The Oreos were good. No, we were working on does the medicine work. So our goal was does the medicine work, not like what's something that a way that we can get in in the wild pigs so there was a couple things on the first day right they're like walking us through and these were like huge boars and huge pigs and so they were walking us through like safety and stuff and they're like no one can go in a pen without someone else like like all this like very and i'm like these are pigs I'm, like seriously and then they're like don't ever fall down in the pen. <laughs> like, what? Like, why can I fall down in the pig? And they said, like, if you fall down in the pen and they can, like, like bite your arm or your leg is like this and they can bite it they're like they can like rip your arm or like what did I get myself into I just kept thinking like this is for this experience is gonna look good on my resume um but it was definitely an experience um and I kept thinking about I don't know if you ever but I think in like Silence of the Lambs or one of those movies they actually got rid of a body because they like fed it to a group of pigs so then it was like every time I had to go deal with the pigs I'm like I can't go alone I was like stressing out about it so anyways that's a total aside, but you can get research experience. it can actually be really interesting. It helped me meet a ton of great people, get better recommendations for vet school, and it was very, very helpful to me. None of it meant I was going to do research long term, but definitely helpful when I was applying to vet school and when I was in vet school to continue to like grow my resume. Those things are still in my resume. the papers I'm on, things like that are are good, so <laughs> enough about the pigs eating people. <laughs> We digress. We are professionals in this podcast. um. So I think all that is really, really helpful. Hands-on experience is good. Obviously, you have to have access to it, but hopefully you can get that. I think it's important if you're in undergrad, you absolutely can get it, even if you didn't get it before undergrad, because you're going to be somewhere that's going to have vet hospitals locally or have a vet school where you can absolutely find something that you can do. Now, the other thing that I think is really important, and this is kind of the one we'll end on, um, but... I think if you're trying to go to vet school and you want to set yourself up for success, I think the mental prep of it is also important. so I was privileged in the fact that I was in vet school at a school that I went to for undergrad. I knew where everything was. I had a group of friends that also got into school, and I had you. We got married between first and second year, so I had somebody <laughs> our child screaming. <laughs> And we had children. No. So I had somebody, you know, we got married and I had somebody who would make sure our animals were fed at home who, you know, could help out if like I didn't have food and I was stuck at school and I just had that level of support not everyone has. And I think that that is important to have to set up like a support system if possible. And if you are not able to do that and you're going into a school setting, and especially if you maybe already struggle with like anxiety anxiety. Or stress, like handling those situations. I think utilizing things in undergrad to set yourself up to have a good foundation is important. So, a lot of universities will actually have like free therapy, um, three like free sessions that you can talk to somebody at the on campus, like medical facility. Um, And I think knowing what resources are available, knowing what you might struggle with in vet school. And how to kind of prepare yourself for that is also really important. You, from like the outside looking in during vet school, did you feel like it was a stressful experience compared to like other things that you had seen in your college career?
1: It was definitely more intense than undergrad for sure. Now, I will say that you and your group of friends never came across as like (laughs) super stressed out. I mean, there's a lot of nights out of the chicken and other places. So I don't know that it came across as stressful. Uh, but I've got several buddies who are in med school and other things, and their schedule seemed a lot more lax as compared to y'all's.
0: Yeah. I mean, you spend a lot of time at school because you have to learn about so many species and there's so many other things. I I will admit my group of friends was like a work hard, play hard group. So we would hunker down when we needed to, but we we absolutely knew that we had to do things that weren't just related to school and vet medicine. um, And we needed to like refill our tanks. And a lot of us enjoyed spending time together and cooking out and going dancing and things. And that is important to know, like how is your tank refilled and thinking like, I'm going to go to school, go home and I'm not ever going to do anything else. will wear you out.
1: I think the other thing specifically for me in undergrad, I was trying to make grades to get out of school. I'm not necessarily trying to learn or retain knowledge. I think as you get into a more professional degree or even like the last year maybe before you get into vet school, you're really trying to retain knowledge and learn because that's something you want to do with your life. So I think in undergrad, get those core classes out of the way, but then get to something that you really want to retain and, and learn. Um, and I think going into vet school, it'll probably make the transition a little bit easier because you retain some of that knowledge that you're going to need right out of the out of the gate.
0: Yeah, taking the more advanced classes that are – interesting and also feed into what you are going to do is helpful. And then, you know, getting more like hands-on experience and whether that is research or, you know, volunteering somewhere or working at a hospital remind you of like why you're doing everything you're doing and being around animals or being around people that have the same um, appreciation of things can be really helpful. Our kid is standing outside the door. You can come in. It's okay. So that probably means we need to wrap it up because uh, our kid is here and uh, we need to help him out. Um, We appreciate you guys listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can leave a review on any of the podcast uh, episode places at Spotify or Apple. Um, we love to hear your feedback. We love to hear your questions. I hope this answered the question for this pre-vet student. Good luck if y'all are applying. We love to hear if you are applying, if you get in. Um, I love those stories. And reminder, we are not professionals. We're just sharing our experience and our thoughts about all this. And if you have anything you want to add, definitely let us know at Questions with questionswithcrocker. you yes, so much.
1: Send us questions.
0: Yes. And Corbett says hi. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, and have a great day. Bye.